We are in 2 Timothy, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. If you have a pew Bible this morning, that's page 995. We are continuing this morning in the series, Guarding the Deposit That Was Entrusted to Us. And we're reading from 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 14 this morning. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermaeus and Felicius. Who have, served, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Two different instances in these pastoral epistles we are told to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us, and we're walking through these pastoral epistles in an outline that uh, talks about the things that cause us uh, grief as we attempt to guard the deposit. And one of the things that creates grief is bad teaching. In the last few weeks we've been talking about that and looking at various texts in these pastoral epistles that deal with that and how we should react to that. Um, If you remember a couple of weeks ago we made the inference and, and looked at scripture that says certain persons, certain persons. And we, we spent considerable time talking about people and, and how bad teaching rises up because of the hearts of people and how they respond to correction. In, in the case of, of the pastoral epistles, in the case of the church at Ephesus, uh, Timothy was sent to correct. And as he went to correct, they didn't respond to that correction very well. And... Uh, and continued in it. Um, so the, the heart of man is that he, he can easily make it about himself. And so we talked about those issues. The second time we came together, we talked about, and last week, is that we should expect it. The scripture says very clearly that, that in the last days, people will rise up and teach air. And so we shouldn't be surprised that one of the things that we need to give diligence to in the church is teaching. We need to, we need to listen well, but we need to listen 
to make sure that what is taught is scriptural, that it's not just somebody's idea of what they think is scriptural, that we need to test it in that sense, that it's according to the revelation that's been entrusted to us. There, there has been a deposit given, entrusted to the church, and the church is to protect that. Um, it's not just everybody kind of says their own thing. That's not what it's about. It's about a deposit that's been entrusted, been given to the church to preserve, not to add to it, not to change it, but to guard it and to declare it faithfully. Now this morning we come to Second Timothy and another place where it talks about, we alluded to this last week, but in Second Timothy it, it again talks about um, bad teaching and how we should respond to bad teaching. In this particular case, it's dealing with a blatant error. And it's talking about someone who has come, who actually has been excommunicated from the church, but continues to teach. And what they're teaching is the resurrection is already past. Well, that's dangerous, those kinds of teachings. In fact, in the book of Corinthians, it says, um, if there's no resurrection, then we're the most to be pitied. Uh, and in fact, the inference of Corinthians is, if there's no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, then you just as well... Go out and eat, drink, and be merry and live it up because that's all there is. That's really what it's saying in Corinthians. We're the most to be pitied, it says, if there's no resurrection. And so the resurrection is incredibly important. And so in that case, it was a blatant error. I don't want to talk so much about that particular error because certainly blatant errors come. But in my estimation, as I've done pastoral ministry for these years, it's, it's not the blatant errors so much that get us in trouble. Uh, they certainly can, and, and we, we have to listen well. But it's more the mixed messages that get us in trouble. Um, here in the text, it talks about, in verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble. That's a good way to talk about it, babble. There's lots of babble that goes on in the church world um, that, that just is mixed. It has enough truth in it. That's the, tr- that's the kind that's dangerous. It has enough truth in it to hook you and to get you to listen, but then it deviates in ways that ultimately causes great damage, I think, to the church. And so we need to be careful. What I want to talk about this morning is is ways we can recognize that before we come to the table. The ways we recognize babble, the way we recognize mixed messages. What What is the fruit of those mixed messages? Now, before I go there, I, I want to say this, and I've said it before, is there's, there's great danger. I, I've made the statement that one of the, the, the worst things you can do for a, for a new believer, one who's just come to understand Christ and begins to understand the gospel, is to send them into a Christian bookstore. That's incredibly dangerous. I remember as a new believer going into a Christian bookstore, I had no clue what to look for there. And, and invariably, you look for the, the glossiest title or the catchiest title. Uh, it can be incredibly dangerous. You can go to bookstores and, and get, get totally um, uh, definitions and statements that are totally opposed to one another in, in premises in books. You have to be careful sending that. But I think even a greater danger sometimes in the church world is in the area of music. Um, you need to be careful with music. I think more heresy gets taught in the church in this day and age through music than any other venue. Do you listen 
as you sing to what you're singing. Um, it's easy for a melody to catch us and we get carried away with a melody and miss what it's actually saying. Um, there was a time in the church world when everything that was produced, every bit of music that was was given to the church came through the church. It, it, it tested it before it came to the church in the day of Bach and some of that kind of music. It all was filtered by the church. Today it gets filtered by publishing companies. And there's an inherent danger in that. We need to listen carefully. We need to listen to music. Music can teach us things that are incredibly wrong sometimes. In fact, I said last week that in my Sunday school class, somebody said, I I heard something that just seemed not right, but I wasn't sure why exactly. And then we had something in Sunday school last week that kind of clarified that for them, what was wrong about what they'd heard. What they'd heard was a song. They'd heard a song that just didn't seem quite right. I hope, I hope we listen carefully in those, those realms. Another place that you can get lots of air taught, and this happens in, even in the light of what's happened out east in the great um, storm that hit the east coast. Invariably what happens is the media wants to stick a microphone in front of somebody who's supposed to have some kind of religious knowledge and ask the question, why? Incredible amounts of air get taught when that happens. And I understand the pressure of that. There's certainly a great pressure when that microphone gets thrust in front of you. But listen carefully to those kinds of things. Um, Because lots of air gets taught in those kinds of moments. Um, I'm convinced that that is not the moment to talk about the why when it happens. One of the things that I've, I've fundamentally thought was important within the church as I've pastored over these years is that we teach people a theology of suffering before they're there. If you remember a number of years ago, we had a class on a theology of suffering that took quite a while. It really was what I realized. It was my theology of ministry, which has to have at the foundation a theology of suffering and brokenness and the world and sin and all of that. And so as I began to teach it, if you were in that class, you remember we did it by a series of number of boxes where we had kind of an image to, so that we could remember the concept that was taught. And the very first one, remember what it was? Hospitals and... Help me. Surely you remember that. What was it? The hospitals and... I should have gone the other way. Airplanes. Remember that? Hospitals and airplanes. The airplane part was because just within the last few days... There had been a, a, an airplane accident where somebody in our community was, was actually still lost. They hadn't found the plane yet around Christmas time. And then we referred it to hospitals as well. And the point was you, you don't in those moments with people try then all of a sudden to teach everything you know about suffering. You don't dump it on them in those times. Because most times they, they won't listen very well there the, through the emotion. The hurt. What, what a better way to help, your, help people is to, to, to build that into their lives. To build the concept of the sovereignty of God and some of those things into their lives. So that when suffering comes, it catches them. It, it catches them. And they know how to see it and how to view it. And it doesn't, it doesn't rattle them um, for eternity. 
they, they catch it, though maybe they may be shaken by the moment and shaken by the circumstance, there's something solid that catches them. And again, it, it goes back to we have to be careful to listen and, and, and build the right kinds of things in our life. If we don't get the right foundations, um, we're going to be in trouble. So this morning, what, here's, here's ways to recognize some things I think from this text. Ways to recognize that something's just not right and the fruit of it that comes out of it. There's, there's a series of things that happen when bad teaching wins the day or wins part of the day. The first thing, we alluded to it a little bit last week, was the first thing that happens is it, it, it does not, I'll say it, I'll say it to, in a kind of positive way in a sense, it, it doesn't lead to godliness it leads to ungodliness. That's a negative way to say it. It leads to ungodliness. But it doesn't lead to godliness. It doesn't produce godliness. Teaching that is mixed or wrong will ultimately not lead to godliness. Now look at a couple of texts. One is one we looked at last week and I didn't fully unpack. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, beginning about verse 14, Paul is talking to Timothy here and he, he drops something in in verse 16 that's interesting. He talks about hoping to come to him soon and, and basically tells why he wrote the book so you'll know how the church should operate. And then he says this in verse 16. It almost seems out of place but it says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. I, I think what he does when he... The reason that that isn't out of place, even though it seems out of place here, is what he's been talking about is guarding the deposit. And what he's saying is how you ought to operate in the church is guard that deposit and make sure that people get that deposit, get the gospel, understand the gospel. And if they do, it produces godliness. The mystery of godliness that comes from this gospel, from the work of Christ, and how that's what produces godliness in people's lives when they get it right. And so here he says it should produce godliness. And then there's another text that I want to look at in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Look here what it says. It says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people, this is, this is what really unrighteousness or ungodliness looks like. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he sums that all up by saying this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's what getting a mixed message again and again and again and never being able to sort that out does to a body of believers. There, there's, a, there's a form of godliness in it. They may talk about godliness, but true godliness does not get produced because the very means by which it's produced is distorted. When the gospel gets distorted... It produces a form of godliness, but it's not the real thing. The power of it is not there. My contention is it it's really becomes kind of a self-righteousness. And at other times, I don't want to 
I don't want to take time this morning, but at other times we've said it's, it becomes kind of an invisible barrier in a church. When people come into that church, they run into that barrier. It's like it's an invisible wall. They hit it, and they know they hit something, but they can't even define what it is. But, but it has to do with godliness that is really not godliness. A form of it. Lip service to it, if you will. But it is not the real thing. And when you don't get the real thing, it turns rotten and it causes all kinds of trouble and it, it just hits people as they come into it. Now, what is it? Now we have to say, what, we need to define godliness a little bit. Because what is godliness? I mean, even they who, who have mixed messages say, we have, a, we have godliness, but it's not the real thing. How do you discern the real thing from the false thing? They may say it is it may have a form of it. What's the difference? What's at the root of godliness? My contention, the root of godliness is humility. And, and where, where godliness goes wrong is that it is not built on the foundation of humility. True humility. True humility. And what the gospel always does, when you get it unmixed, it produces godliness because it produces humility. When you understand the gospel and you are experiencing the gospel multiple times a day even, it always leads you to humility. It's what happened to Paul here as you read 1 Timothy. Remember we spent a couple of weeks, but Paul is talking about guarding against untruth. And then in verse 12 of chapter 1, He just says, I received mercy because I acted ignorant in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. He just just rehearses the gospel. It, It caused him to be humbled again by the fact that God came to him on that Damascus road and opened his eyes to see what he was fighting against. Humility. So the first thing that will happen when you get a mixed message day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year, the cumulative effect of that is it does not produce true godliness. It does not produce humility. And though there may be a form of it, underneath it is a steely pride, though though veneered is is at the root. And that will not produce godliness. You, you will not. You will not grow in godliness if... Pride is the foundation of that endeavor. The second thing that happens is that it spreads like gangrene. Another thing you will witness, that kind of thing spreads like gangrene, as it says here in the text in verse 17, and their talk will spread that way, like gangrene. It just spreads. Another way to know if if that's happening sometimes is you you just start to recognize air by... Who will jump on board of it? You see, this is kind of how the progression happens. You, you have somebody who, ha- who are teaching a mixed message. They get a little bit of the truth because it's mixed, but it's mixed with air. And so it produces a, an ungodliness there. That, you know, there, it, it's a mixed thing. But then all of a sudden you, you look to the, to the followers of that, those who come after that. And the problem there is that that they don't get the mixed part of it. They don't get it. And, and you start to see who's, who's attracted to this. Who is attracted? The, the gospel in itself, the scripture says, is an offense. 
to the natural man. It is an offense. What the Gospel says, we don't welcome. That's why it creates humility. It undoes us, really. And, and so you begin to see who is, who is jumping on board with this thing. How it spreads. It, it easily spreads because it appeals to natural man. When, when pride is the foundation, that appeals to natural man. Man likes that. It tickles him in ways that causes people to jump on board. It, and you start to see that. It appeals to the flesh. And then the, the long-term effect of that, which is really tragic, it says in, uh, in the latter part of that text, they are upsetting the faith of some, it says in verse 18 at the very end. The, the third thing that happens, it, it, it starts out by not producing true godliness. It, it gets accentuated as people jump on board and follow this. They're willing to follow it because, because it's not about humility. It's really about them. They get on board. It tickles them in ways that it ought not to tickle them. The gospel doesn't tickle us. The gospel undoes us. And then thirdly, what happens is... It, it disillusions people. One of the fears I have about mixed messages, about the gospel being mixed, is that it ultimately leads to, to disillusionment. Because what happens is we, we, we talk to people, we share the gospel, and, and we give them promises that all of a sudden they see are a sham. They're a sham. That we, we say things, but as they try to live this out in this mixed thing and go to the wrong things to, to see the gospel produce fruit in their life, they get disillusioned. And what really happens in those kinds of cases is that people get inoculated to the gospel. They get just enough to get inoculated to the real thing. And, and there's all kinds of people by the roadside who have been a part of fellowships where they jumped in in the beginning, it was exciting, and then all of a sudden they start to realize there's something wrong here. And, and what you're saying doesn't work the way you say it works. And, and they're honest enough to say, chuck this. this. This isn't right. But the problem is when you go back to them, they said, I've already tried that. I don't want to go there again. That's the tragedy of mixed messages. That's the tragedy of not sounding the message clearly. That's the tragedy of not uh, guarding what's been entrusted to us carefully. Now, what I want to do this morning is my contention is the way to guard against that the best, the way to to guard this gospel and to come against the air the best is just to get regular doses of the real thing. You get regular doses of the gospel. And as you get regular doses of the gospel, you know what the real thing tastes like so you aren't as susceptible to biting into the wrong thing. So this morning, let me invite you to turn with me the text that was on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10. And as we come to this table, this is what it represents. This is the gospel. 
it's, it's one of those nuggets, I think, of Scripture. There, the Gospel is all through this book. This book is about the Gospel. But there are texts that just are so clear and so plain. This is one of those. This is one that I go to often. The picture it gives us is so clear as it describes it. Begin reading with me in verse 11 of chapter 10 of Hebrews. The greater context of the verse that was on the screen. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The gospel, the gospel first and foremost, is about dealing with sin. The reason that Christ came was to deal with sin. The great dilemma that we've talked about that is not a dilemma to him. The dilemma of how God, who is holy, can forgive sin and still be holy. How can he do that? How can he do that justly? It has to do with sin. And the scripture says we're all about that. Every priest is, is trying to wash his hands. He's trying to do something that will, will make those hands clean. He's trying to do something that will deal with sin. But the truth of the matter is, you can't. They can't. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. The gospel is about realizing that you are helpless to take away your sin. You can't do it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's, there's nothing that you can do in yourself to wipe away that blot. We all, at one time, were there. Nothing we could do. Nothing any priest could do. And then it goes on. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. All of those offerings of, of the, the Jews in the Old Testament, all of those priestly offerings that they were commanded to make were pointing ahead to the fact that someday one would come who could do it. They would never suffice. They would never take away sin. But they were pointing to another who would come. And the one who would come was Christ. And the scripture says, when he offered for all time a single sacrifice, when he offered his own body for that sacrifice, the scripture says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? Why is that there? He sat down because that indicated it was finished. Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished. What was finished? That finally one had come who could offer a sacrifice that would take away sin. And then it goes on. That's not the end of it. He sat down because he'd finished the work. He'd offered the sacrifice. 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. What's that all about? What's the waiting about? Waiting about is about now. He offered one sacrifice that could take away the sin of his people, but he didn't immediately usher those people into the kingdom fully. It's the now. It's the time from when he rose from the dead and went to be seated at the right hand of the Father through this time to the one day when he will return again for his people. It's, it's this time. And in this time, he's waiting for, for his enemy to be made his footstool and, and, and he will be made his footstool. But that's all but not been consummated yet. And then it says, and this is the powerful picture that we had in my son's class this morning. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those that are being sanctified or being made holy. The footstool is that time when his church is being made holy. Those who have put their hope in the finished work of Christ are being conformed to the image of His Son. That's, that's what it is to be a believer today. You have rested in that one-time sacrifice of Christ. You see that that's your only hope. You realize that no other efforts will cleanse you of your sin. And you put the full weight of your hope in that single sacrifice. And as you do that, you begin a journey now that will be consummated one day when Christ's kingdom is fully consummated. Now, let me, let me put that in a picture for you. Many of you know this illustration, but we have people coming in all the time. And, and so I promised you that part of the invitation to come to this table was to know that you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What does that mean? What, what picture is that pointing to us? This is us. This is you and I. Outside of Christ. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. This is you and I who have fallen short of the glory of God. And you do all kinds of gymnastics to somehow wash away the guilt of that, but deep down in your heart, you know it's there. You can suppress it, but the Bible says you know it's there. You know that you've sinned. And you know you're naked and you know you're in trouble. And some people try to deal with the trouble by just denying it. But by the grace of God, God begins to stop the denial. And we just stand naked and say, I've sinned. I, yes, I've fallen short of the glory of God. I'm in trouble. And at the same time, God begins to help us to see that though my efforts won't do it, there's another, Christ, who by a single sacrifice, it says, made perfect forever those who are being made holy or being made perfect is another way to say it. What's that all about? That's about the righteousness of Christ. You see, we realize we're in trouble. We're naked. And we run everywhere we can to get clothed, but nothing will clothe us until we begin to see the work of another. 
This represents Christ's work on the cross. This represents the single sacrifice that he made. A sacrifice that took the sins of all who believe upon him. He took their wrath. God opens our eyes to see there may be another way. And we begin to see that way as being Christ. He who had no sin became sin for us. That's what the cross is about. That we might become something. And what was that? That we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, that, that He would give us His righteousness. In other words, this isn't ours, it's His. He, he didn't just die for our sins, but He perfectly lived for us and obtained a righteousness that He can then give to others. The Bible talks about that being an alien righteousness. By, by that it doesn't reside in me. It's out here. It's what we sang about this morning when Charles Wesley talked about being clothed in righteousness divine. It's this righteousness. It's this work. It's His accomplishment. And the Gospel is about seeing our nakedness and looking to Him to cover it by His work. That we trust His finished work. And in that finished work, is an exchange happens. He gets our sin and takes the punishment for it. And he does it perfectly so that he can give us his righteousness. And so literally we become clothed in his righteousness. And, and we begin to understand by a single sacrifice, we're made perfect forever in the sense that when God sees us, he sees the perfection of Christ and he counts it as ours. I've said before, if you want to go to heaven, you need to be perfect. It's true. You have to be perfect to go to heaven. The problem is you've squandered the first attempt to be perfect. We've all sinned. But there's another who will give us his perfection. That's what the gospel's about. His righteousness, his perfection that he accomplished, that he earned. The gospel's about him giving that, the great exchange. Our sin, his righteousness. We have the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But that's not all that the gospel is. There's more happens in that gospel. And what, what happens is that this covering is here. By one single sacrifice, we're made perfect forever. That's this, perfect forever, because it's His perfection. His perfection will never change. We are resting in it. So we're perfect forever as God sees us. But here is us. And, and also God comes into our life by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We sang this morning about the Trinity as we began, about the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, when I go away, I will send another, the Holy Spirit. And when, when we t- trust in the righteousness of Christ, God comes into our life by the presence of the Holy Spirit and begins to make this Righteous. Now, not in the ultimate sense, not in perfectness, but we begin a journey of growing in righteousness, growing in godliness, growing in sanctification. And, and this becomes actually quantitatively different. That's what being born again, that's why that term, we're born again, we're quantitatively different. We begin a journey of righteousness, of growing in righteousness. Now, The point that we must always remember is that this will grow quantitatively down the road. 
It's what Pastor Jason talked about. Rejoicing in that God is working in us and we're growing in godliness. That's, that's the trajectory of all believers. We, we, we begin to grow. But never to the point where we can say, okay, I've arrived at some degree that I'll just cast this off. If you ever try to cast this off, this won't get it. This won't cut it. Because it's not perfect. You see, this is part of the whole idea till his enemies are made his footstool. There will be a day when this will become perfect, when we will actually be glorified. That's, that's the, the finality of salvation. One day when we enter his presence, we will actually be made righteous. But right now, it's the footstool part of it all. We are being made righteous, not, not perfectly righteous. And we must always rest in the righteousness of Christ. Now, the point I want to make this morning is this. The reason, the reason that the fruit of bad teaching cannot produce godliness is because the way godliness is produced is by the gospel. The only way you will allow yourself to unpeel the onion and really get to the root of what's going on in your heart and life as you progress down this road, is if you're absolutely confident that there's nothing under here that will cause you to ultimately be condemned. You won't look at the ugliness of your own heart. You won't deal with the ugliness of your own heart. If you somehow think that if I really do that, it will cause me to be in trouble and to be in jeopardy. You see, you're always resting in His righteousness. And the more you rest in His righteousness, the more you understand this and understand the surety of this and understand what you're standing before God is because of all that Christ has done, the more willing you're and to let Him work in here and really clean up the ugliness. But you see, if this message is sounded mixed, you won't be able to rest in it to allow the grace of God to work in your heart as it ought to work. Because you'll be afraid that if God really knows who I am, He will condemn me. You see how it works? You must, you must have the pure, unadulterated gospel in order to be free to let Him let you progress in godliness. That's why it's so important. You see what happens to people who who, who don't get the true thing is they hear about growing in godliness and they and they they, think, they try to do it but it, it doesn't work they don't have any power they don't have any passion they, all of that, because they don't have the confidence they don't have this they don't have this solidified in their mind you will not you will not grow in godliness if you don't know that he has made you perfect forever even as he is making you perfect in reality. Now, making you perfect doesn't happen till you're glorified. In fact, the more that the more that you progress in godliness, as I said there, there's a quantitative difference between an, an unbeliever and a believer. There's light between them. If you were looking this way, if I were at one end of this particular platform as I shared this morning, an unbeliever was here and God were at the other end. Um, an unbeliever would be here and you would be quantitatively going toward godliness. But 
you'd start to see a break of light and more light and more light. But one of the things, and every illustration breaks down, but one of the things is, you see it this way, you'll see the light. But the other thing that happens when you start to grow and you start to rest in the righteousness of Christ, in the one-time work of God, and you can begin to grow, you, you also begin to see this way. You begin to see this way. And what you begin to realize is that though I've made progress as I look this way, actually my vision is much clearer and that goal is much farther down than I ever imagined it was. And, and as you do that, as you turn and see that, you start to see more of who God is and how far there is to go. If you can't, if you can't rest in the covering, you'll quit. You'll stop. You'll get scared. Because, as we said this morning, that's an undoing effect. You, you get undone. You get undone when you really start to see your heart and see your motives and see the intentions of your heart. And if you can't run back to this and say, okay, I see it, but I'm not trusting in that. I'm trusting in this. You won't keep down the journey. You'll quit. You'll quit. It's too scary. It's too risky. It will condemn me. So this morning I say to you, this, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what produces godliness. When you see, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, all time, those who are being perfected or sanctified or being made holy, however you want to say it. May God help us to keep the vision of this clear so that that can happen. Let's pray to you. Father, we just pray now that as we come to this table, that, that even that invitation to all who are trusting in being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the invitation is open to take and to eat and to do it with joy because of all that it represents. Lord, this morning, maybe some for the first time or are just declaring to you, I trust your finished work. I trust that one-time work for me. I trust that you have taken my sin and my guilt and the wrath that comes because of that and you've given me your righteousness. And so I come to this table with joy. God help us. It's why we need to do it regularly. It's why we need to remember often. Often, because it's the only thing that will help us to grow in godliness and to be undone so that you can do a work in our hearts again and again and again for your glory. So strengthen us now. Strengthen us by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's what we were to be reminded of. That's what Timothy was to remind the Ephesian church of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The gospel. Lord, we just pray now that that you will Help us and strengthen us. Consecrate 
these elements to that end, Father. In Jesus' name.